Well, I hear there's a really important basketball game going on today. It actually happens at 2 o'clock at the South YMCA. (laughs) Old men basketballs, winter tournament, whatever we call it. I don't know, all right? Uh, No, of course not. Well, it is a great day, not only because there's basketball going on, which of course you guys know I love, but... We are starting a new series, and I'm excited about it, and so I'm looking forward to what we have to learn in the book of 1 Corinthians. So let's pray as we get started. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, and as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, I just pray that you'd be with us, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us guidance, that we would look at this book and try to see ourselves clearly and how we might change our lives. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, let's start out with the city of Corinth. So you'll see there on this nice map that Rob got all ready for me. I appreciate that. We got this nice map. You see Corinth. You see Corinth is kind of on a little, it's on an isthmus. You guys familiar with the term isthmus? It's on a little stretch of land. It's about four miles wide that connects kind of the southern part of Greece and northern part of Greece. And you can see it there on the map. So the city of Corinth is connected by an isthmus, and people actually avoided going around the southern part of the of the of Greece. So you saw there on the map that they could kind of go around underneath if they wanted to to the south, but actually boats really didn't want to go that way. So what they would do is they would take their ships up to this like four-mile isthmus. They would park them. They would put them on some kind of rollers or some kind of skids, and they would actually drag them across the land to get to the other side. And when they drug them across the land to the other side, guess which city they passed along the way? They went by Corinth. And the reason, one thing they said about going around the southern way where they, where they, uh, where they avoided it, is a quote, it says, a sailor never takes a journey around Malay, which is what they called the, the kind of the southern tip, until he first writes his will. They would rather drag their boats across the land than take the risk of going down south. And if you're kind of wondering what happened to Corinth in the modern day, um, It's changed a lot, and the way it's changed is they built a canal across there. So that canal started to get built with Nero. You've probably heard of the Roman emperor Nero. He's famous. He he started it. He didn't really get very far. It wasn't really until uh, the uh, 19th century. I think it was some French engineers that finally finished a canal. So people still don't go around the south, but they don't have to drag them across skids or or uh, on wheels anymore, they just take them through the canal. So because of that, Corinth has kind of lost its prominence. It's no longer a trade city, and it's now just a small town. So the city of Corinth, if you want to look at the map one more time, you can see the canal where it would be and how they do it nowadays. But in Corinth's heyday, it was an important city. It was a major trade center. And it also hosted the Isthmian Games. You guys have all heard of, hopefully, the Olympic Games. They're famous. We still do them today in some degree. Well, there was another type of games that took place, and it was the Isthmian Games. It was called the Isthmian Games because they 
took place on this isthmus, on this little piece of land that connected northern and southern Greece. That is where they took place. And so these really important games took place there. And so Corinth was like a key player in that because they were so close and a part of it. As a matter of fact, we'll see a number of kind of sports illustrations. If you think later on in 1 Corinthians, it talks about a boxer. It uses this illustration of a boxer, and it uses a couple sports illustrations because of their connection to the Isthmian Games. Um, another thing that was important in their history, it was actually destroyed by the Romans in 146 BC. So you have the city of Corinth that got pretty much wiped out off the map by the Romans in 146 BC, and then it was rebuilt by Julius Caesar 100 years later. So when it was rebuilt by uh, Julius Caesar 100 years later, it was really a Roman city, all Romans. And then as time went on, some Greeks started moving in and living there. And then because it was a trade city and all these people were passing by, it not only had Romans, it had Greeks, it had Jews, it had many other nationalities. It became very metropolitan and it had a lot of different kind of people in it. Old Corinth, the Corinth that wasn't destroyed, was really, really kind of famous for its evils. You may have heard the things like, oh, to be a Corinthian was to be evil or to be a lot of negative sexual connotations. But all of those things actually have to do with old Corinth, and they were thrown away. So they had the Temple of Aphrodite. They claimed that they had like a 1,000 temple prostitutes, which historians tend to exaggerate, so I don't know if it was really that many or not. But that was all some very famous things. Maybe you've heard about Corinth. And that was really all about old Corinth and not new Corinth. But don't worry. New Corinth was still really bad, okay? So don't think that they were some sort of a saintly city. As a matter of fact, I remember when I was traveling with my college, we would travel from camp to camp. We'd do eight weeks in the summer. We'd go to a different camp for eight weeks, and we were going through some town, and we were driving down the road, and we noticed the name of this church. It was called Corinthian Baptist Church. I think it was a Baptist church. Corinthian Baptist Church. It's like, huh. I wonder if they've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, because if they had, they might choose a different name, because the people of Corinth were having a lot of struggles, a lot of struggles dealing with the ways of the world and separating themselves from the ways of the world. So let's talk a minute about Paul and Corinth. What was his relationship to that city? He started the church on his second missionary journey. So the church, I, I, I read this, this is really interesting. One guy, he, he thought, who made up this church? It didn't seem to be, have a lot of Jewish people, and maybe some, but when Paul first came, he came and preached in the synagogue. So who are these people that heard him? As a matter of fact, when he got kicked out of the synagogue, he seemed to preach at a place next door. So who was it that ended up converting and becoming the church of Corinth? One guy kind of, uh, somewhat of a guess, I'm sure, kind of educated guess, he actually thinks it was people that were very disillusioned with the immorality of Corinth, and they took an interest in Judaism, but they never really fully became Jews and incorporated into the Jewish culture, probably because they were not so excited about the kind of the very narrow nationalism that a Jew would be really caring about, and also things like circumcision and whatnot. So it seems like it was made up of mostly Gentiles and possibly people that had previously been interested in Judaism. While he was there, he lived with Aquila and Priscilla. They were fellow tent makers or leather workers. We're not quite sure what it is. Of course, traditionally, we we'll always say he was a tent maker, and that's probably what he was, but 
He likely worked with other leather products as well. So he lives with these fellow tent makers, and they were Jews. They had been expelled from Rome by Emperor Claudius in like AD 59. So they had been kicked out, they got sent there, and Paul lived with them. Um, while he was there, he started the church. He got in trouble with the Jews. You know, this is kind of like a pattern with Paul, right? He gets in trouble with the Jews. They bring him before a Roman tribunal. They're like, get this guy in trouble. You know, he's causing all these problems. And when they brought the case before the leader, he said, you know, the proconsul, he said, you know, I think this is just a really a Jewish issue. Jew, the Judaism is a protected religion, it's allowed, and you're just talking about a variation of Judaism. So he just threw it out, and he wouldn't listen, and he didn't have anything to do with it. But then, after this, Paul went on to Ephesus. Shortly after that, he went on to Ephesus, and of course, there's a famous book of the Bible with a letter written to the church that is in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. It's interesting, after he went to Ephesus, another sort of famous name, a guy named Apollos came to Corinth. And when he came from a Corinth, he, he was confused about a few things. We read about it in Acts, and Aquila and Priscilla seemed to straighten him out on it, but he was a great preacher, and he spent time in Corinth as well. And when we start in chapter 1 today, we'll see where he's mentioned. So, now I'm going to give you the timeline. Let me tell you, it took me a long time to get this straight, so I really hope you feel like this is interesting, because uh, it took a lot of work to figure this out. So, First thing, he founds the church. That's not so hard. Then he writes the previous letter. So our 1 Corinthians is not really 1 Corinthians. It's really 2 Corinthians. But I'm going to just stick with our normal name. I'm still going to call ours 1 Corinthians because if I start calling it 2 Corinthians, I confuse myself. So we're going to call the first one the previous letter. And the reason we are going to call it the previous letter because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he, in 1 Corinthians, references the previous letter. So we're just going to call it the previous letter. So when he left, he writes this letter. It seems like they were already having problems, and he had to write this letter. We don't really know what was all in the previous letter, but he seemed to write it because they were having difficulty. Later on, he receives a letter from Chloe and, from, uh, and another one from people in the church. We don't know who all was involved in writing that one. That one was also bad news about the church. And we know that because in 1 Corinthians 1.11, it says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he's talking about some other people. So this was these other letters he's receiving. Things are not going well. The previous letter didn't help. So what does he do? He writes 1 Corinthians. And of course, this is the book we're familiar with. After he writes 1 Corinthians, he comes and visits them. And this visit is called the painful visit. The painful visit. It says in 2 Corinthians verse 2, it says, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He had already had one visit that did not seem to go well, and he decided not to have a second one. So it just seems like things continue to deteriorate, and it actually gets just a little worse. 
The next thing that he does is he writes what would be 3 Corinthians, but we're going to call it, he writes the severe letter. So the previous letter, we have 1 Corinthians, and then he writes the severe letter. And it says in 2 Corinthians 2.4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. And it references that in other, other places in 2 Corinthians as well. And he has to write this letter to them because they are still not doing what they are supposed to do. So what he ends up doing, he decides to go visit them. And on his way, someone comes and brings him news about how things are going on in Corinth. And when he hears this news, he writes a letter, one more letter that we know of, and that letter is 2 Corinthians. And when he hears the news, he hears good news. And so 2 Corinthians is actually more of a positive note because he had heard good news about what was going on in Corinth. And then almost surely after 2 Corinthians, though we don't really have any proof of this, he likely visited uh, Corinth after that. So that's how this goes and the, the order and the chronology. Let me tell you, Sometimes books need to just write out the chronology in point form and get it out of paragraph form because uh, sometimes paragraph form is confusing. So I hope that was helpful for, to you. So let's start in with 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother, Savior, uh, not our Savior, brother, and our brother, Sosthenes. So, Paul, he is the writer of the letter, and who is he writing this letter with? Sosthenes. And I'd love, before I talk a minute about him, I'd like you to notice something. He uses this phrase of Jesus Christ, and he'll, sing, he'll use like, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it quite a bit. You'll notice it here in these first 17 verses we go over. But he's writing it, he also mentions Sosthenes. And you know, almost surely, the reason he mentions this guy is to give himself a little bit more credibility, right? You ever have this problem with the lack of credibility in your life? Let me tell you, I have. And since today is the day of basketball, which it is every week here at Sunnyside Baptist Church, let me tell you a story about basketball. I remember when I first started coaching, I was uh, 20, I was probably 22 years old, so maybe 23 years old, and I was coaching, and people would tell me I you know, maybe could have been playing because I looked so young at the time. And so you know what I did when I went to those games? I wore a suit. I wore a full-blown suit and tie every week. All the other coaches, they were in sweats and whatever, not me. I was in a suit because I just could not get anyone to believe that I was worth listening to. And so I thought maybe if I wore a suit, they might listen. I needed some credibility. I don't know if that suit helped me out or not, but I gave it my dead-level best try. And so this Sosthenes is likely giving credibility, which tends to make me think that this is the Sosthenes that is mentioned in Acts 18, verse 17. It says, And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. So I told you that, when they brought him, Paul, before the tribunal, that he threw it out? Well, Sosthenes was actually the ruler of the synagogue. He was the leader. And when that failed, he was beaten by his fellow Jews. If this is the same Sosthenes that took place there, that means 
that Sosthenes tried to get Ball in deep trouble, maybe even kill. He gets beat by his own people. Then somehow, at some point, Paul or someone else goes and witnesses to Sosthenes. Sosthenes becomes a Christian. And then when Paul writes a later letter, he actually co-writes it with Sosthenes. See, credibility. Like, you know, Sosthenes, the person who's from Corinth, that's lived there, that knows you guys. He's been around since the beginning. Not me, who just came in for a short amount of time and planted a church, but this person who's lived there and who's been there. So he writes this letter with Sosthenes. We go on to verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth. So he's writing it to the church in Corinth. This is, this is fairly common. Paul often starts his book saying who he's writing the book to. But the rest of the verse is a little bit unique. It says, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You notice our Lord Jesus Christ mentioned again. It's not only to Corinth, but all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord. So in some ways, this book is written to Sunnyside Baptist Church more than any other book in the Bible. And while that's probably technically not true, of course, all the Bible is written to us, but he writes this to Corinth, and he says not only to Corinth, but to all the churches. And no other book does he actually say, no, I didn't just mean this for you. I spe he specifically mentions I mean it for everyone. And so this letter was likely not only to be meant to be read in Corinth, it was likely meant to be taken to other places and read to other churches because he really wanted this to be known in other places. Which is why sometimes when people make arguments in 1 Corinthians about culture, like, oh, this was only in Corinthian culture. This, this is specific to Corinth, and it's not other places. I say, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. He specifically says, you know, to people who are in every place. So we go to verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a somewhat familiar intro for Paul. You may have heard of this before. The word peace was a very Jewish greeting, and the word grace was a play on words for a common Greek greeting. The Greek greeting was um, like Korean. You might say it Korean, or at least that's our English-sized version of it. And of course, grace is charis, and so it's kind of like a play on words. So he sort of changes a Greek greeting, and then he also adds a Jewish greeting, so he puts both the Greek and the Jewish greeting in there, and he kind of changes it from the common greeting. And it says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We notice that again. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So he thanks God for them. Now, something I read about this this week really struck home. Corinth had just lots of problems. And so when he thanks God for them, I think it was more like this. Maybe you've had a son or daughter to some of your babysitting at mealtime, and they were just a disaster. Just every moment was a war, and it was super difficult. And, you know, you still love your kid and everything or your, whoever you're taking care of, your niece or your nephew, but just kind of would like to strangle them, right? And you take them to bed that night, and you're going to say prayers with them before you go to bed, and what do you say to God? I really thank you for giving me this child to take care of. 
Are you really thankful? Of course, yes. You're, you don't, you don't want to give your kid back or whatever, but it doesn't mean your kid's necessarily been all that good that day. And it seems like Corinth is a bit in that situation. Of course, Paul is thankful for them. They're still Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, but they have not been doing particularly well. Verse 5, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. So in 5, 6, 7, he's talking about you have everything you need. You're not lacking. You, you received everything you needed. You knowledge, spiritual gift. Then as he gets in the second part of verse 7, he says, Verse 7, he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you had everything you needed in the past, and now you look forward to the future. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we see that phrase, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He says, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless until the day of Lord Jesus Christ, guiltless. They are in the midst of a big fight with each other. So I one time heard of a church that was, had a meeting, and I, I've, I heard of this one time, and I'm sure it's happened before, and they were having a business meeting, the dreaded business meeting that they had to talk about something difficult. And by the time this meeting was over, the swear words were being thrown loose and free, and everyone's yelling at each other and just turned into total, total disaster. And you know what often happens in these kind of things? Well, if they're going to act that way, they're, they're like not even Christians. They're not even saved. We, 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 we jump to that one quick. I have heard the you're not even saved thing thrown around for just some of the, I would consider, Pretty ridiculous things. I mean, you don't believe in the sovereign God, you know? You don't, I mean, you obviously don't believe in it because you're not a five-point Calvinist. And if you're not a five-point Calvinist, you don't really believe in the sovereignty of God. If you don't really believe God's in control, can you really be a Christian? I mean, I'm probably making a little bit of that up, but I mean, we really do jump on the, you know, I, I disagree with this person. I just don't think they're a Christian. We jump on that bandwagon quick, and you think all the terrible things the first Corinthians that we talk about in 1 Corinthians, all the bad things that they do, what does he say? You're guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we have our disagreements, when we think differently about things, we need to think about how even Paul, with the difficulties they were having in Corinth, he didn't try to tell them they weren't Christians, even though he is strong in correcting them. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We see that mentioned again, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. This word agree, this, is, this word agree is important. It, it's like fit together. So I want you to agree. So it's fit together is a word they would use in tent making or maybe with bronze. They had a lot of uh, or brass. They used a lot of brass in Corinth. And there's a word like bring together like this. But this particular agree isn't just like seal the seal the 
the rip or the tear like coming together. It's more like weave it together. Make it waterproof. Make it waterproof. Stronger than just like come together. It's be woven together. So he appeals that you, all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You know, we all do things a little differently. We all have different ways of doing things, and we all think ours is the right way of doing things, and everyone else's is the second best way of doing things, or, or maybe third. But you know what? Even though we'll have different ways of doing things, if we can get together going to the same goal, we can get it done, right? It's when we start having different motivations. Oh, what I, I really want is this, or I really want is this. And sometimes we kind of lie almost, like, why claiming what I really want my goal is, is to, to see people be saved, but I, I really actually have a few other alternative motives that are kind of personally driven, and so I'm not going to really say that. Because if we really, if we really can get all on the same page, we're all trying to do the same thing, we can agree, we can fit together, right? And he's imploring them to do that. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. It's like quarreling, it's, it's not just like an argument, like, you know, I think, you know, we can kind of all argue a little bit or maybe even half for fun. This quarreling actually is a, a little bit of a play on words for the God who incited war. This is like battle strife. This is like they were really fighting. This is not just, you know, we kind of fought and then a week later we can't remember what we're talking about anymore. I mean, they're, they're really duking it out. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Everyone is taking a side. Everyone is joining a team. So, I'd like you to think about this for a second. I follow Paul makes sense. Paul started the church, so maybe I'm a big Paul guy because he started it, I liked, liked him, we got along, I'm with him. Okay, Apollos, he came and preached later, right? I told you about that. He had come and preached later, so maybe he had come and preached in the church. He was a great orator, so maybe, oh, I'm, a, I'm an Apollos guy, you know, another, another person. Goes. But then the third one is, and I follow Cephas, Peter. And Peter was in Jerusalem. Peter didn't, I mean, unless I'm getting it wrong, I don't think Peter ever showed up at Corinth. So why would there be people that were claiming that they followed Peter? I never really understood this. I, I took a class, a seminary called 1 Corinthians, and we discussed this, and I, I never really found a satisfactory answer. And I, I read something that I, I don't know if it's right, but it's just really, it's really convincing, I think. Paul chooses these three things for this reason. Paul was a Roman Apollos was a Greek, Paul, Roman citizen, he was Jewish, but he was a Roman citizen. Apollos was Greek, Cephas was all Jewish. And we see later on in the book when it's talking about divisions like 1 Corinthians 11, when they're having these issues over communion, that there's like probably these class structures, and it's likely related to money and probably also likely related to race. And if you think about it, who's going to be top dog in Corinth at this point? The Romans, right? It's their city. 
And then, you know, the Greeks, they at least, you know, it's their country, or, you know, they, they're native. And then the Jews, they're just like, the, they got shoved in there later. So who's going to be the poorest, likely? The Jews. And who's going to be the richest? Likely the Romans. And so we see these divisions that go on in Corinth. And it's very possible that what Paul is saying here isn't actually that people are saying, I'm a Paul guy, and I'm a Paulist guy, and I'm a Cephas guy. He might be saying, no, you are joining teams based on your heritage, on your race. Could be, could, may not be, but I thought that was a very interesting. It brings in Peter in a way that it didn't make sense. Even using the term Cephas, that's his Jewish name. So he doesn't say Peter's a Cephas specifically, it's his Jewish name. And the last group is I follow Christ, and I usually have heard this explained all in the same way. And this is the people of the group that were the, the really self-righteous ones, you know. It's like this, I, you know, I'm not sure if the pastor's even saved, but I'm praying for him, you know. You know I'm, I'm doing the right thing, right? You know, we, all, we all have been that way, and we know how that goes, where we look at ourselves, and well, I'm, I'm doing all the right things, and I'm just trying to straighten everyone else out, you know. I think we've all had our turn being that person, because they try to say we're above and beyond. We don't follow anybody. We just follow Christ. It reminds me of, uh, this is kind of a big subject, and I'm just going to try to keep it general. People will debate over doctrinal issues like, oh, is you know, Jesus really the Son of God? Or whatever it is. You, know, you pick it. And so they're trying to hammer out a doctrinal statement. And then the one group says, doctrinal statement, I follow the Bible. I, I, I agree with the concept. But everyone in the room has already said they agree with the Bible. The debate is over what the Bible means and what the Bible's saying. So to claim you're somehow above everyone else that you only agree with the Bible and the rest of them don't, to me, is just kind of a self-righteous way to get yourself out of it. Um, because I, I think everyone in those debates would claim that often. I mean, it's not that it's untrue. It's just unhelpful and just kind of makes you seem better than everyone else. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So he'd been mentioning, like, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, some follow Paul, some follow. Look, did, did I as a Roman, did, did I die for you? Did Rome die, you know, whether it's Rome or he's Paul specifically, whichever one he's referencing, did, did I die for you? Was I baptized? Were you baptized in my name? No, no. Why are you dividing into these groups if we were all baptized, if, you were, if the one who was crucified for you is Jesus Christ? And then he goes into kind of, kind of an aside. It's almost like you talk to someone, I'm sure we all do it. I remember Mr. Thompson, you guys, some of you met Mr. Thompson when he came and spoke at my ordination. He used to talk to me, and then he'd, he'd turn, and he'd start walking away, and he'd keep talking, right? You know, like change the subject. And it's like, this is how it is. He, he sort of goes on this bunny trail. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that, say that you were baptized in my name. And then he kind of mumbles on. And not mumbles is probably not right, but he kind of goes, I did but also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. We end this morning with verse 17, and it says, 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So, what can we learn from our passage this morning? What was Corinth's, they probably had likely had lots of problems. You know, we, all, we often don't only have one problem. When I had to apply for my PhD program, I was asked to say what the theme of the book of uh, Philippians was. I don't know if I've told you guys this story. What's the theme of the book of Philippians? And I said, well, it's, it could be Christ-likeness, you know, be like Christ. But I said, the book of Philippians, really like all the New Testament letters, they're occasional in nature. They're occasional. That means this. There's, some go, there's something going on. There's specific problems happening. It's not like Paul sits down and goes, I'm just going to sit down and write out all the theology in just some sort of way for everyone to know. No, there's actually problems going on in the church. There's issues that need to be happen, that are happening that he needs to address specifically. And so we'll see it in Corinth. He addresses this issue and then this issue. So what was their problem? They had many problems. They had many. They had more than one, as in Philippians addresses more than one subjects because it's, it's an occasional in nature. But what's the main thing that they're struggling with? They cannot get along. They cannot get along. They are fighting with each other, and they're, and they're quarreling. And we already see Paul giving the solution to the is- issue of quarreling. And what is it? That we can be unified in Christ. You know, when things aren't going well, or things aren't going our way, we just tend to bicker at each other, don't we? We do it in anything. You know, you're playing more basketball. Are you playing basketball? You're losing? What do you do? You get mad. You start yelling at the ref. You start yelling at your teammates. You get upset. Things aren't going well. But sometimes Christian, our Christian life can be hard. Sometimes there's difficult things. Sometimes we start bickering at each other. Sometimes we start fighting with each other. Sometimes we divide instead of unite. We all can do it. Sometimes it sneaks up on us even when we don't realize. We don't, we don't even think we're doing it. And the thing that always has to bring us back together, the thing that always has to bring us back together is Jesus Christ. The church is so diverse. So many countries, so many languages, so many cultures, so many differences. Like if we think we're different now because we're all like not the same age, the differences between any of us compared to the differences with Christianity worldwide is like nothing. We are really alike. And what is the thing that brings us together? Jesus Christ. And so often we get our eyes off the prize. We do not think about Jesus Christ, what he would have us to do and so then what? We don't, we don't agree. We don't come together. We divide. Corinth had this problem in the worst way. We'll talk about it more, and we'll talk about some of the other things that Corinth was going on in Corinth and the issues that they faced. 
But I'm really glad that our new series started on the first Sunday of the month. Why is that, of course? Because we have communion. And what's one of the greatest symbols of Christian unity where we come together? We come together, we have communion, where we take the body and the blood, the symbol of Jesus' body, of his blood, his death and resurrection. We think about the past, how he died for us. We think about what he does for us today, how he saves us in our sanctification. And we think about the future and how he's coming again. And we are unified in that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for this morning. I just pray as we get ready and prepare ourselves to take communion that you would help us to have our hearts right. That we would be loving to one another. We would be loving to one another because of our love for you. We thank you so much for what you've done for us. We thank you for your son, sending your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.